Before we begin, I would like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of our series. Welcome to Tech Unmanned, a CSIS podcast where we bring together technologists and policymakers to discuss the intersection of defense, national security, and emerging technologies. I'm Caitlin Johnson, Deputy Director and Fellow with the Aerospace Security Project. And I'm Emily Harding, Deputy Director of the International Security Project here at CSIS. As you all know, Lindsay has left CSIS to pursue emerging tech policy from inside the government, but I am absolutely delighted to have Emily join me for this episode. She has firsthand experience working within the government and with legislators to tackle some of these issues, and I know she's going to be a great contributor to this discussion. Well, welcome to Tech Unmanned. This episode is on the Silicon Valley DC relationship, and I am so excited for this conversation today with some absolutely incredible guests. First, we have Amelie Coran. She is the Senior Technology Advocate at Splunk. Hi, how are you doing? Thanks for joining us, Amelie. And second, we have Lauren Badula. She's the Managing Director at Beacon Global Strategies. Thanks, Caitlin. Hey, everyone. I'm so excited to be here today. Thank you both for joining us. And again, thank you, Emily, as our guest co-host. I just want to start off this conversation with some framing and just introduction to the subject. What is the history? Often, I think I hear that Washington, D.C. and Silicon Valley are at as at odds as the Montagues and Capulets. I feel like this characterization of these two sides divided is... I don't know if it's just the media and it's the headlines, or is that really the case? And Lauren, maybe you can give us some introduction to this issue and where do these kind of negative sentiments come from? Absolutely. Thanks, Caitlin. And and let me jump into it. And I'll start by hitting on the fact that there's actually a long history of close collaboration between the U.S. government and especially the Department of Defense in Silicon Valley. And one example is Fairchild Semiconductor, which is considered one of, if not the pioneering startup of today's Silicon Valley. And and Fairchild got its first business through military contracts, building chips that helped send Americans to the moon and also helped build missiles that armed the US in the Cold War. And the first IPO from Silicon Valley was in 1956 for a company called Varian, and they sold microwave tubes for military applications. So that all said, it's clear that this collaboration has slowed in the last two decades as the tech sector has focused on digitization, the Internet of Things, and other areas with less direct national security applications, while the DoD had been focused on the relatively low tech war on terror. And during that time, I think cultural division and a lack of trust built up that led to events like Google pulling out of DOD's artificial intelligence project called Project Maven in 2018. And that was because 4,000 Google employees, including a lot of senior engineers, and some even resigned, signed a letter urging that Google not be in the business of war. And our country's politics definitely played a role in this division. And this was a really pivotal moment, I think, for Silicon Valley and the U.S. government, because you saw many companies particularly in big tech, publicly or quietly pick a side to preserve either talent, like we saw in the case of Google, or for companies like Microsoft and Amazon, the opportunity to compete for contracts like 
Jedi, which at the time was the DoD's $10 billion cloud effort. So real hefty price tag. And there's some pretty awesome quotes from Amazon's Jeff Bezos or Microsoft's Brad Smith at the time reaffirming their commitment to the people who serve this country or gem of a country, as Bezos said. And that doesn't even hit on the many smaller venture-backed companies that are dealing with this issue internally with talent or that are eager and committed to doing business with the U.S. government and the hurdles that they face with that process. But I think there are plenty of signs that we're moving back towards the historic collaboration I talked about earlier, including with Google at the table as a strong U.S. government partner. And, and this is driven by two major shifts. First is DOD's focus on great power competition with China. And to a lesser extent, I think Russia and Silicon Valley's focus on technologies that have both commercial and national security implications. So things like artificial intelligence, autonomy, 5G, quantum computing. And you know, finally, for today's discussion, I know we're focused on Silicon Valley specifically, but I, I want to point out that I think a lot of what we will discuss applies to the many distributed tech hubs across the country and innovators kind of throughout the country as well. Absolutely. Uh, shout out to my friends in Austin who have dubbed themselves the Silicon Valley West. It's a really growing tech industry there as well. So, Amelie, maybe you can expand on that a little bit from your perspective, especially in, in industry and in one of the cutting edge industries out there. Um, what's the perspective of companies who do and don't want to work with the government? And how do we really break through that barrier and come to understand each other? Yeah, well, I, I think actually one of the, the things to, to kind of realize is there's a there's a difference. There's the companies and then there's the individuals that make up the organizations and companies. As Lauren kind of mentioned, you know, definitely the companies have had contracts to do X, Y and Z for the Defense Department and other parts of the government, including like DHS and DOJ and all those ones that have definitely had, uh, I wouldn't say image problems, but, you know, kind of mission alignment challenges with the folks who are actually creating the technologies that they use. And then obviously having originally kind of come out thinking I was going to be an academic at getting out of college, you know, a lot of a lot of these really cool high and lofty uh, majors with, you know, artificial intelligence and robotics and various forms of technology, the best place for people to apply these at the time, at least especially as they've matured from the 90s up until now, has been Silicon Valley. So sometimes this has been the only outlet for them to kind of expand on the stuff that they've been trained to do. So it's a tough balance to try to figure out, do the cool stuff, but think about how it's being applied. In one case, you can think about the technology being used to do autonomous vehicles and on the other side, you know, it was sponsored by DARPA, the, uh, the autonomous driving challenges through the late 90s and, and 2000s that was used to then hopefully, you know, basically create battlefield robots and the like. So it, it does kind of create that little bit of uh, a conflict of interest in a way. But again, it also goes down to individuals. So like with the founding of the U.S. Digital Service and definitely with the recent announcement of the U.S. Digital Core, it appeals to individuals and the missions of each particular agency or division. So if you're looking at, uh, you know, say the DOD in the way of peacekeeping, you know, you may get individuals who come from Facebook or Google or any host of Silicon Valley companies to kind of address those more humanitarian missions if they can, you know, kind of find that niche. The same way would be for the U.S. Digital Service is sol solving the hard problems that have a wider scope. You know, one of the things of seeing people kind of come in and immediately get attached to the Veterans Administration or HHS 
with public health, you know, that was kind of a way to to see that direct connection because it was at the individual level rather than waiting for a Microsoft or a Google to get involved in a particular project or contract with the government. So it's a it's a weird gray area, but it's also you have to address the appeal, uh, you know, both at the individual level, but also at the, the mission level uh, and trying to align those. Can you say a little bit more on this idea that we don't want to be in the business of war. I think that sometime in the last, I don't even know when it would have started, there was a shift from, I want to support my country, I want to defend the country, I want to protect American lives. And then it, it shifted into, I don't want to be in the business of war, like the US government was in the business of war, or maybe those wars weren't justified. I think what has struck me in many of my conversations with folks in Silicon Valley and Austin and the tech industry is this disconnect between supporting the U.S. government and that being a positive thing for protecting American lives. Where Where is that disconnect coming from? Transparency has been really key. So I think in the case of Project Maven, for example, when this came out, you know, this push to not be in the business of war, there was little transparency about exactly the role Google was playing in Project Maven, which was a computer vision effort to work with drones to detect objects on the ground. And so more transparency around exact use cases, I think, helps have that dialogue with talent throughout the company so that they don't feel like there's this mysterious work going on behind the scenes that they don't know about. And I think a lot of the collaboration and dialogue we've seen between DOD and the U.S. government in these communities has helped. And transparency isn't really natural in a national security setting, right? And so that gets back to that cultural clash that we talked about. Yeah, and I also think there's a, a longer tail thing, uh, you know, coming from where I do in the computer security community, you know, when there was the documentation about the pullout or retreat or however we want to term it for Afghanistan. And, you know, some of the first stuff that came out were the fact that devices that were capturing biometrics that were originally there for, you know, identification and safety of people entering secure zones were abandoned and that data was on there. And the folks who worked on facial recognition software kind of like, oh, my goodness, like all this stuff that we did that was there to kind of basically keep people safe is now potentially being turned against them and actually makes them less safe because, you know, people can can hyper target folks. So, it you know, the, the direction of benefit versus harm occurred very quickly over time, depending on how that was applied. And there's that long tail. It's like, I don't think anybody really thought back when they were developing these devices, uh, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago, that, you know, within a couple of weeks, they'd immediately turn around as a, as a tool to, to target individuals that were at great risk. It's kind of the calculus of unintended consequences. And that's where you turn somebody who is very much in the supportive mode into somebody who, you know, would be virulently uh, against kind of the state of where things are. And that can get carried over to any battle space or you know, humanitarian effort if you're in there doing airlifts or, or food distribution or, or healthcare in the case of a pandemic. It's, it's just this really, really weird long tail that people have to kind of play that chessboard out to figure out, like, will this, will this eventually be used in a, in a negative fashion? And Amelie, you make a great point about the facial recognition piece. And I think DOD and Google's efforts to define their own ethics and principles around AI and and document that has helped with the dialogue or understand what we can and can't or will and won't use, for example, AI for whether or not a human will be in the loop addressing things like AI bias. So I think we'll continue to see efforts to really refine what these technologies will be used for, especially when we watch countries around the world 
really abuse them for human rights issues as well, which will continue to play a role in this debate. I love this discussion. It feels like the capstone of a lot of things we've heard about in past episodes. For example, biotech, we talked a lot about ethics and how the biotech community approaches them. In all of these different episodes, the whole point, I guess, of Tech Unmanned is to kind of get at what Amelie said is like, let's talk about the cool stuff, but also talk about how it could be applied and bridging that gap between the technologists and the policy and the implications of the technology. So I want to talk a bit more about like some of these key issues or concerns that we're overcoming. And Lauren, as you put it, we're trending back towards greater collaboration between Silicon Valley and D.C. But a couple of times throughout the podcast, as we're talking about specific technologies and acquiring them, we've heard that there's a valley of death between the Silicon Valley companies and getting their products into DOD or into the government wholly. Can you just dive a little bit deeper into this? Because we haven't really had time to really talk about it throughout the podcast. Yeah, definitely. And when we talk about the valley of death in defense acquisition, what we really mean is the two-year period between development funding, which we've seen a lot of focus on lately through things like small business innovation and research funding or other transaction authorities for prototypes or pilots or the opportunity for these companies to get a foot in the door. And the sustainable and scalable funding through inclusion into a program of record takes time. And there's also natural friction, I think, on the commercial side in sector two when doing business. But the problem is so exacerbated in government because contracting and budget cycles require two years minimum for funding to be allocated. And the valley of death problem tends to affect companies that are newer or smaller entrants to the space and don't typically work with DOD. And for these companies that are often at the leading edge of innovation, it can be really hard to justify the gap between receiving small development dollars and getting funds as programs of records into their business plans or really knowing that there's a sustainable uh, opportunity there. So I think Congress is very focused on this issue and and so is new DOD leadership. So um, you'll continue to hear the term, but I hope we'll hear more um, opportunities for solution or ways to fill that gap. Yeah, I think we could do four more podcasts on various companies talking about the burden of regulation and government requirements in order to get over the valley of death. And by the time you you meet all those requirements and the technology's evolved anyway, so <laughs> so it's time to to start over. And it's easy to admire the problem, but I think harder to come up with solutions that still um, support the competitive environment we need to do business in this space. So I I wish it was a simple problem to solve, but I think definitely something we'll continue to hear more about. The speaking the same language problem, Uh, much like we joke that the Americans and Brits are two people separated by the same language. I think that D.C. and California are occasionally um, speaking. They think they're speaking the same language, but they're really not. I know that One of my very first interactions when I got to the Hill um, was with uh, Apple and their lobbyist who sat down and tried to explain to me why there was absolutely no way that that Apple could provide backdoor access to their devices because it was the golden age of surveillance and the government could get anything they wanted anyway. So why did they need Apple's help? And I remember just looking at them with my head cocked to the side like, what do you mean? Your encryption is preventing us from getting anything that we need. So maybe we need to talk more. Maybe, Amelie, you could speak to this this different language that folks speak sometimes. When we talk about these issues like surveillance or like, you know, whether or not these kinds of technologies are going to be used in, in a war situation, 
what types of, of phrasing is people, are people using that isn't really working? How are we not speaking the same language? Coming as a technologist, leaving the, the public sector and going to private and private back to public and public back to private again, you know, we're really fond in the D.C. area, especially just saying D.C., the use of acronyms. Sometimes there may be two, like CISO was both a law about information sharing, and it's now an agency of which that agency has to implement. We're really good at DC of kind of shooting ourselves their own fit with our own terminology. But, you know, as you mentioned about kind of the, the definitions and the, and the language and whatnot, you know, I, I think back to, you know, I was on a I was on a panel I actually dialed in because I was in northern Ohio and the, the, the panel was actually in North Carolina. And it was right after the San Bernardino shooting. And it was a for a forensics conference. And one of the cases there was trying to explain to folks like, you know, most of these people were law enforcement or defense department or some someone associated with it. And it's like, well, you're just making our, as you mentioned, like making our lives harder by having encryption and, you know, basically trying to explain to people there's a, there's a larger scope to this. You know, Apple, while it is an American company, has a global user base. So you have people in China and other places that may have a more dictatorial or abusive uh, regime in charge. And these people are using these tools as a way to, to guarantee freedom of communications. And, you know, when you weaken one, you weaken it for all. So what you're doing to get, you know, the criminal du jour that made the news here in the States immediately is an opportunity for, you know, one of those countries that we don't look upon so kindly to find a way to persecute dissidents or other folks who may be against the government like Myanmar. I'm sure there's some good stories there and, and so forth. So one of those cases is just understanding. Again, I go back to that com conversation here about having a long tail is, you know, the need of the day necessarily does not align with the strategy overall to protect all the potential users. And the same thing would go for, say, like AI, like it's really cool to have your facial recognition and do all these wonderful like AI portraits and stuff like that. But what that is, is that's using a lot of this fuzzy logic AI to kind of fill in the gaps. And I think one of the, the things that was released this past week was taking a very noisy photo and then using AI to kind of fill in features on the um, photo to kind of come up with a pseudo-realistic version of what this person would look like without all the noise in the photo. But that gets into potentially targeting a uh, wrong person. So you have twins or, you know, as we've known before with biases within some of the algorithms where it doesn't work very well with, you know, darker skin types or, you know, people of other races and, and, and whatnot, you know, you could target people uh, improperly because, you know, poorly designed algorithms or those algorithms are being used without the, the knowledge that, yes, they've been trained very poorly. So something that was built in the U.S. works in a certain fashion here, doesn't work in some other country that's more homogeneous in the, in the, the, the cultural makeup and creates challenges with a lot of that. So that's, you know, that's one of those conversations that you walk into, you know, an executive office in one of the, the, the branches of government you try to explain to. And, and these are political appointees that are not technologists and are like, well, why can't we just use it? And without the thought of there's a bigger impact if it potentially gets used incorrectly. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought up the AI issue. We had a, a conversation here at CSIS a couple of weeks ago about um, trying to bring AI in a more comprehensive sense into the defense and intelligence establishment. And one of the main hurdles we identified was that most of the seniors in the defense and intelligence establishment don't have a great idea of what AI is and what it can and cannot do. And just trying to educate on when you say AI, like, no, it's not going to solve all the problems. And these are the constraints that exist around it. I think that's that's going to be the next couple of years is going to be that meeting of the minds between these two communities on what things like AI really mean. 
Yeah, I was going to say is like there's a gap. You were talking about the the gulf of understanding and whatnot. There's a if there's a gap between marketing and reality. You know, having been somebody who came up through uh, electrical engineering, computer engineering major, uh, one of the things my professor said is like you're not necessarily the one as an engineer developing the next new thing. It's the marketing department that's basically telling that you need to basically move mountains or create science fiction to make sure that whatever's been sold has happened. And I think a lot of that with with AI, ML, Internet of Things, you you name any technology, it's been sold to leaders to basically loosen up the checkbook to purchase. But the reality of what's delivered uh, is massively different because no one's really kind of like shaken it out and saw, you know, what kind of comes out of the cereal box, whether or not it's all full of marshmallows or it's actually something nutritious in there. And the nutritious part is the the understanding that your Wheaties or, or cornflakes or Cheerios you know, are providing that level of nutrition to make your mission or, or, or outcomes, you know, what it needs to be. Or are you just living on those, the sugar high? I love that. AI is lucky charms. Magically delicious. I just want to ask, I mean, we've kind of covered a lot of the challenges that we need to overcome to have a better working relationship. Have we missed any that you guys want to highlight? Well, I'll, I'll footstomp this idea of, you know, talking about very different communities. And, you know, Amelie's point about working with engineering and marketing to come up with whether it's use cases or kind of creative ideas around applications. It really reminds me of these different communities, the intelligence community, national security community, looking at new technologies from both a threat perspective. So what threat could this pose, as we've discussed a little bit, um, but also how can we leverage it to keep our forces safer or be more efficient in mission execution? So on the big picture, I think having those creative dialogues with different communities is really important. And then at the more tactical level, I'll raise two things. One, clearances. I think a lot of folks in Silicon Valley or these tech hubs are opposed to going through the process of getting a security clearance. And on the flip side, it's really hard to hire folks with clearances too. So to scale up, if you're looking to build a business in this space, I think that's definitely a major hurdle in both money and time for non-traditional or dual use companies. And to help, I think the U.S. government should be pretty clear when companies need to have clearances so that they can plan and prepare accordingly. So just that transparency, I think, is important. And then a second topic that you know we think a lot about is overseas capital. And this is an area that the U.S. government is really working to come to terms with. And I think DOD needs to better understand the role of investors and the difference between board members with voting rights, observers, what access to IP investors truly have. And that requires a cadre of people within the government who really understand this world. And I think DOD's Defense Innovation Unit is a really good start for this. And then across the services, Air Force F Ventures is, I think, really leading the way. But then on the flip side, I think the transparency or understanding, maybe it's awareness to founders who are fundraising around what taking foreign capital could mean for their business, whether it's jeopardizing intellectual property or jeopardizing their ability to do business with the U.S. government. So those are two challenges that I think a lot about and, and will be important to overcome for closer collaboration between these two, two communities. I think also, you know, one of the cases is too, and, and this comes from having worked on the FedRAMP program back when it got started, helping workshop out some of the requirements, but also, you know, as I've, I've progressed throughout my career in the federal government until, until when I left, was 
uh, speaking, you know, both as as somebody who was developing stuff as a CTO, but then, uh, you know, folks, uh, a person who had, you know, friends who were vendors and whatnot. Uh, one of the biggest complaints I always saw was like, you know, that this process to get certified or approved or be on a, on a purchase schedule for the FAR or anything like that was not necessarily an argument about like what was the best technology. Uh, you know, there's plenty of awesome technologies out there. It's more or less as you mentioned before, kind of the time. Yeah, I kind of called this kind of the survival of the richest, the ones who who had the, the money to burn to wait for a FedRAMP approval or to wait for a DOD certification or to wait to get picked up by, say, a Kerasoft for a sale in. You know, that's the challenging thing. And I've talked to plenty of founders, too, who are just kind of like, how do I get it so that someone's going to contract with me or buy something from me? And it's an extremely long process and people just tend to lose hope. So beyond, as you mentioned there about, you know, what it is to take foreign capital or investment or who sits on the board or, you know, what it is to, to get all your staff cleared. Uh, you know, some people have found ways around that. I think like SAP is a good example where it is a German company while half of it can basically do business easily with the federal government as SAP stands, you know, as a, as a German, uh, German owned and held company. To be able to get in the national security space, they have a whole SAP NS uh, for national or NSI, I think, for national security interest, where it just suits DoD and the the intelligence community, and there shall the twain meet. And you know, some folks adapt that way, but again, that's a large company that can afford to basically run two divisions. If you're a small startup who's providing a single, say, data analysis tool for Amazon, you're hoping that Amazon's going to kind of like slip you a little cash under the table to kind of go and get through those certifications. And I think, you know, what's provided to the government is not necessarily always the best of breed of the technology. It's just the ones who've been the most patient or have had the best funding to basically kind of wait out the entire process. And I think the government and its services and, and capabilities and missions tend to suffer from that. Absolutely. And I think the investors at the table is so important too. And we're seeing several companies pop up that are really well-funded and focused primarily on doing business in the U.S. government space. So it'll be interesting to see over the next several years how that works out. But I think you're spot on. It's like you need the cash and time to go through these processes. And it can be so frustrating for small companies. And it can also be limiting from whether it's a national security perspective to our ability to use these new technologies. So kind of a, a vicious cycle there. But I think investors at the table, it you know, it's pretty important for us to, to wrap our heads around this issue. You know, we've been talking a lot about the hurdles. Are there ways, and I think specifically DOD for you, Lauren, but also Amelie, you've worked, you know, in the, in the World Bank and all over the place in the executive branch. You know, how can the government start thinking about cutting down on some of either those lead times or the clearance process? Are there good examples of this already that we can copy and try to, to mimic? Yeah, no, I mean, I can I can kind of jump in a little bit of, you know, some of the challenges as a, as a CTO trying to bring in new technologies. You know, sometimes it's, I would say, playing with the letter of the law, but the idea is is how to work under the restrictions. It, it, it's usually up to the, you know, say the company that you're trying to pick the technology for, looking at the regulations or programs that the, they fall under that certain umbrella and then the willingness of, you know, a tech leader to basically kind of help walk them through. In some cases for us, uh, you know, trying to find exceptions for FedRAMP, uh, just as it, you know, some of those things were, you know, getting them on a, on almost like a, um, not a prohibition, but a, um, 
oh, probational kind of stance. Like, could we use this in a sandbox to kind of prove this thing out to basically say, hey, you know, we, we're doing this mission critical thing here. It's an add-on to an already securely approved service. Can we look to potentially speed this up or does this actually fall under the requirements to, you know, follow this regulation to the T? AWS, you know, adopting AWS or Office 365 and, and having that go through FedRAMP is very different, I think, than add-on service from a smaller third party because, you know, it's just one of those, those lesser parts. And that's the thing is I, I think a lot of smaller companies just get discouraged because it's like they only see this as a big hurdle to overcome rather than trying to partner up with folks. And, you know, I think that's one of the things about the, the leadership that occurs with, within each administration is, is where is that outreach? You know, with, with the change of administration here, I've definitely, obviously, they, they tend to kind of say that the Democratic administrations are a little bit more tech friendly than uh, Republican or, or even it's potentially some independents. And uh, they align themselves with that. So, you know, every time you have a switchover on the party, there, there's kind of a lean in to see, like, can, can we speed up? Can we start to remove some of these barriers in certain areas? And uh, there's a lot of potential partnership being, being announced through different agencies and, and folks tend to capitalize on that. And having been through a couple of administrations already, you know, I've definitely seen that kind of go wax and wane. People are much more willing to approach technology leaders now because it, they, they see that there's, there's a more willingness to adopt and adapt rather than just, oh, this is all self-interest or there's, you know, there's very limited outreach. I think the U.S. government needs to provide clear signals on what technology it needs. And to Amelie's mm-hmm. point, you know, we should expect an updated national security strategy, an updated defense strategy, and that will likely reflect technology priority areas, which is a start. And it helps point investors to the right direction, I think, to help fund some of these companies so that they can sustain business in this space. And then the greatest tools DOD has are its contracts and big budgets. So I think that's why there is this appetite to figure it out. And DOD has the authorities to rapidly contract. We've talked about OTAs, mid-tier acquisitions, things like joint urgent operational needs, JUONs. But we really need to move beyond small dollar SIBRs and provide sizable contracts to the big winners, not to everyone. We've you know still got to compete and you know, have a fair process. And then I think it's really important for tech companies who are interested in this space to really understand mission and priorities and who their end users will be, back to what we talked about around use cases. And I think then developing their relationships and awareness of their work across those communities will ensure the demand that's needed and support that's needed while mapping budgets to understand really where a long-term fit is. So it's, it's not simple or straightforward. And I think those hurdles often limit us in what technologies our, our government is using. And, and the frustration around that, I think, is causing at least us to, to look hard at this problem and find, Caitlin, as you asked, examples of successes that we can try to replicate across the board. I was just going to add on that too, on the strategy side of the house, where I was at as both as a deputy CIO, I was actually concerned about budgets and, and architecture, but also as a CTO is, is it was definitely uh, our mission kind of wax and waned to the political whims too. So for as an, within the IG, we were tasked with whatever Congress felt like investigating. So we had to change gears very quickly. So, you know, for a technology lead in any of these kind of positions, you know, you had your kind of longer term stuff that you could sign, 
you know, multi-year contract for and other ones you were basically like, hey, I've got some pennies left over and I have this this request from Congress to go and, you know, start this program or, or you have a zero dollar initiative that was there to score, I hate to say political points, but, you know, the show that at least it's getting talked about and you're sitting there with, you know, pocket change trying to figure out, like, how do I implement this? And you're, you know, the those technology leaders are grasping at trying to figure out, like, what do we have in our toolbox versus what do we have to go out to the market and try to find and contract? I think the the recent cybersecurity EO that came out, you know, one of the things I, I you know, when I went on Twitter and, and did my commentary on it was like, like, you know, we have a, we have this really bad idea of uh, setting these these timelines that are absolutely unachievable. I think what Lauren said earlier about like the contract times, putting out an EO right in the middle of when contracts are actually needing to be signed, like in you know May, so that you know you're not tiring your your acquisitions people out, just proves that there's a little bit of out of sync even at the you know folks who are in the federal government that that realize like hey you know we can set these you know 90 120 20 day horizons, but there's absolutely no way in the world that we can move an acquisition through that quickly to actually achieve these things. So there's there's aspirational versus reality in there. I want to pick up on two themes that you both raised. One is this idea that that there's this morass of bureaucracy and regulations and requirements and contracts, and they all exist in this, this Washington bubble that has been built up over the last, I don't know, 100 years or so to try to eliminate as much corruption as possible, to be as transparent as possible. But the knock-on effect of that is just an impenetrable bubble for those who haven't worked and lived inside the government. And then alternatively, there's this really desperate need to do technology better, both inside the government and then in the larger you know, public sphere across the country. Technology is going to be an everyone problem. We can't afford to, to sit back and, and let the really, the really solid, the really cutting edge, the, the game-changing technologies pass us by because we were too busy focused on that, that impenetrable bubble. So one of the, the suggestions that's out there on how to break through both of these worlds and have the two sides understand each other better is to do a hostage swap to try to create a digital core or a um, reserve cadre that can move more freely between the tech sector and the government so that folks in the the future leaders of, of tech understand why the government behaves the way that it does and how to navigate that system of rules and regulations. And so the government can really get the advantage of the technological knowledge and then maybe can change that bubble so it's more friendly towards adopting these new technologies. Everybody seems to think this is, generally speaking, a good idea, but nobody has come up with a good plan yet on how to actually do it. So to our two esteemed guests... Do you have any thoughts on this as an idea? Do you have any suggestions on how this might actually function? Uh, Lauren, let's start with you. Yeah, I I love this topic. And I think we definitely need more cross-pollination between the private sector, more broadly speaking, and technology leaders across the U.S. And it's not easy to get a job in the U.S. government. And we also talked a little bit about the clearance process or some of these kind of burdensome processes that help keep us safe, if you will, protect our information and the like. But I I think while there is great disdain, especially in Congress, for the proverbial revolving door between U.S. government and industry, I think tours like these are important. And there are already some programs in place, I think, around cyber more specifically. And Amelie, maybe you'll 
you'll hit on that. But I think there's no doubt that the private sector is also on the front lines from a threat perspective and also innovation, as we talked about today. And so we have SOX, I think, where they're almost acting as fusion cells. I've seen them at banks or I think looking at those models to replicate would really help increase collaboration. But also this issue that we talked about before that these companies that are eager to do business in the space but don't really understand mission I think they're eager to hire out of government, but if we had tours in place like this, maybe it would be less about fighting over talent and more about a smooth uh, cross-collaboration between the communities. And at the same time, too, I think it's really important to fill some of the leadership roles that are overseeing s and I know at DOD, CIO isn't a permanent role right now, or a lot of folks in the tech community were excited about Mike Brown, who's the current director of the Defense Innovation Unit, being nominated for Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. And someone like Mike had a ton of industry experience, tech experience. And so not only these exchange programs are, I think, important to facilitate that mutual understanding or transparency that we talked about, but also leadership positions. And we need the great work that Ellen Lord and Dana Deasy, who also spent many years in the private sector, the foundations they've laid within the U.S. government, I think you know, we've got to fill those positions to continue their work as well. Yeah, no, I'd I'd say a little bit on on that as well is, you know, having been one of the founders of the U.S. Digital Service that when we did have our our initial cohorts back in the the beta stage, as it was, we were still trying things out. And there was a lot more freewheeling that came from the folks who are from Silicon Valley. So that was instead of looking at using the approved, you know, inside collaboration tools, which I think one of the reasons they didn't get provisioned fast enough, which goes back to the clearance thing, is that we couldn't get them accounts fast enough. So you're running this this weird parallel race of of trying to prove out, you know, this beta idea of using uh, of building out the U.S. digital service with, uh, you know, using USIS uh, at DHS as a as a pilot program, and then not having the tools for these people to use. So we we used an external Google suite to do that, and it's trying to tell the people from Silicon Valley, like, there's a reason we have these regulations in place. It's data protection and it's, you know, privacy protection. And you're putting an entire, you know, mission or, or agency at risk if you, you know, don't follow the rules. And conversely, you know, when you look at it from the government perspective, you're you're kind of wondering, like, well, why can't we be this nimble? Why can't we consume these things fast enough? And, uh, you know, I think that's that's one of those challenges as well. Having been in and out of the government a couple of times already, it also gets in that translation layer. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, you're highlighting, you know, getting battle tested leaders in at that rotating door. The cross pollination can be beneficial, but it can also be detrimental. There's a there's almost a regimented thinking as you're in and out of government that this is this is the way, you know, just because, you know, the government has done it always this way. You know, if you go to the private sector, you're in for a shock because sometimes, especially the further you get away from the Beltway, that's just not the reality of the world. And I think the farthest I got away when I was working for Disney and I brought some some government speakers there to talk to our architecture community. And, you know, they were surprised that, you know, we were able to achieve so much with essentially spent bailing wire because we had no budget or old resources and so forth. But conversely, they were looking at us aghast as to the fact that, oh, okay, this explains why government is in just such disarray because it's just this this thinking bubble, this operational bubble that just occurs uh, because there's so much concentration in D.C. And, and there's this rotating door, even within the beltway, of just the same type of thinkers coming in and coming out, depending on, obviously, the administration. And that desire to get fresh blood in sometimes is also a function of the fact is they just don't pay very well. 
I got to a certain level of my GS scale and I decided to leave because it just it wasn't advantageous with the cost of living in an area to kind of continue to work for the government, even though I believed in the mission. It could be beneficial to get folks in from the outside before they start making, you know, Silicon Valley money where, you know, you're you're looking at massive bonuses and whatnot that are almost as much as some people's entire federal salary for a year uh, in some cases. So you're getting a lot of young talent, but there hasn't been real great marketing to get folks to basically, you know, come out of college and immediately go for a technology position or, or some other type of impactful thing the way that, you know, the Peace Corps was marketed back in the 60s and 70s. And I think this U.S. Digital Corps that's been promoted as, as a, a new program here is an avenue, but it needs to definitely make sure that it's not only financially beneficial for the, the participant, it's also a learning uh, capability. I, I knew my, my time working for OMB at the White House, thought of this as civics, you know, 501 versus a 101 course that you would get in high school. There was a lot to learn about how the government worked, why the government works the way it does, and some of the stuff that you don't get taught in school. And, you know, if people see this as an opportunity to really kind of ban their citizenship in such a way by participating at that level, uh, that's also beneficial too, because it makes them, uh, you know, kind of better citizens overall to understand like, hey, this is this is why, uh, you know, my grandmother's complaining why Social Security is, is having problems or, you know, understanding the coronavirus responses to, it's very complex. It's not just a take a horse pill type kind of thing. You you know, there's a research and development involved with that. There's safety. You know, it does behoove people to kind of participate in government. And it doesn't have to be a career thing. It could just be, again, a time where it's two, four, or even three years as a pick an odd number to kind of come in and contribute where they can and, and learn and take away and, and kind of create this better union that we hope that the, the U.S. is uh, originally supposed to become. Well, I think that's the perfect note to end on. Thank you both so much for joining us. Well, Emily, I am so glad we had Lauren and Amelie join us for this discussion. They were just a wealth of knowledge from two very different backgrounds and experiences. And I felt like we covered a million different things in, what, like 35 minutes. It was pretty amazing. Yeah, they're both really rare beasts in that they can talk about the Silicon Valley perspective and the Washington perspective at the same time and sort of translate between the two, which is more of what we need. Maybe they should just run it all. (laughs) I would be down for that. I'd put those two in charge of a lot of things. I would too. (laughs) What I thought was really great was when we started off, I think we began talking with this shift of perspective from protecting the country to companies not wanting to be in this business of war. And to me, that was just such an interesting way to frame this kind of change in attitude over time and something that I think really resonated and tracks with what I've seen coming out of Silicon Valley and like the attitudes of employees when their companies want to work with the government. Yeah. I mean, coming from my perspective where I spent my whole career working for my government, working for national security, you know, to me, there's no higher calling than trying to protect your country from potential threats. And then you talk to folks who live in Silicon Valley or who who work with some of these tech companies, and they see themselves much more as citizens of the world who are out there for a bigger mission of connecting humanity. And that's a very important mission, too. But the idea that it wouldn't translate necessarily to protecting your country and working with your government was shocking to me at first. And now I've started to see it as a a big potential problem for national security because we're going to need their talent. We're going to need their input. And I want them to believe that not only can they make a difference for their country, but that they should be helping make a difference for their country. It kind of is this comment on a, on a 
broader lack of trust with the U.S. government that I think has been really changing over the last 20 years or so since the 9-11 attack. It really tracks with me of, of how, I think Amelie said, like, you know, even if we, the United States government, might use a technology one way, it does not mean that others will use it in the same way. And something that we see as a good tool or a positive change to help um, increase transparency or support people's lives, make people's lives easier, other countries that could use the same tool and the same data or knowledge to, in fact, track citizens or pick out dissidents in a crowd and things like this that are really scary implications of the same technology that we would use for what we think is a better, more safer world. I mean, the the way that the U.S. government has self-restricted to preserve individual freedoms is something that we are very proud of as Americans um, and a lot of countries around the world don't do. You look at places like China with their citizenship score and the way that they can track. Oh, my my kids loved that the, the recent decision by the Chinese that kids can't play any video games during the week. And the way that they enforce that is to be sure that you have to log on with your face before you can actually play video games. I did not know that. Wow. It, it's, <laughs> it's pretty amazing. My son was horrified. Yeah. He was like, what? How can a government do that? And I'm like, see what wonderful freedoms you have. <laughs> Here in the United States. <laughs> it's a good life lesson for your kids. <laughs> many video games as you want. Uh, yeah, but I mean, the the, tech, the same technology that, you know, the Chinese could use to prevent people from playing video games, um, the U.S. government might use to catch a suspected terrorist or to, you know, track a foreign spy who's attempting to do something inside the U.S. And we have protections in place to ensure that that video is only pursued if there is a legitimate reason to pursue it. And I'm not sure that, as you were saying before, the trust is really there that the government's following its own rules, even though, you know, I can say from an insider's perspective, 99% of the time they really are. Maybe it's just that 1% is really loud. It's really loud. Yeah. I mean, this is where I could go on a whole tear about how much harm Edward Snowden did to mm-hmm. national security um, in reducing that trust. But... There was much more misconception of what he released into the wild than there was actual understanding. And I don't, I don't think it's anywhere near as bad as people thought it was. And it does speak to the trust. I think for me, what was also really interesting and I think just really surprised me was about halfway in, Amelie, we were talking about the barriers to overcoming this kind of divide or making it easier for companies who want to work with the U.S. government to be able to work with the U.S. government. And Lauren and Amelie both pointed out some issues like clearances, the valley of death or funding cycles they have to deal with, navigating the nuances of getting government funding. But Amelie also said something that really surprised me, and it was that the companies that might end up getting the government money are not always the ones producing the best solution to the problem or the best technologies, but they're really the ones that can afford to wait to get through this process, whether that is to afford clearances and be able to wait on them for their people to be able to work on these issues or to wait out that valley of death funding cycle to have enough funding to start work and go without revenue for a year or two, like with the hope and knowledge that they will get it later. And that was just really surprising to me. 
Yeah, you can really see how it feeds the continued dominance of the big primes. Yeah. They have the cash resources and they have the great multitude of other projects and they can continue to fund their activities while they wait for the next government contract to come through. And that's a real challenge for some of the smaller organizations, right? Like not only are they dealing with an impenetrable bureaucratic mess of regulations and responsibilities, but also just trying to ride out the funding lapses. That's going to be a huge challenge. I was doing some research yesterday for another project I'm working on and trying to remind myself about the FedRAMP process, which I will not go into here because it's so painfully long and boring. But that's just the point. It's so painfully long and boring that these smaller organizations that don't have an army of lawyers and an army of lobbyists and all kinds of insiders who can decode the way that the government works, like they're up against a huge mountain to climb. I think there are some pockets of excellence and of good examples. It's not just all, <laughs> all a huge wall to climb. It's not just doom and gloom. Like yeah. there, I think Lauren mentioned um, the Defense Innovation Unit, which is doing really great work out on the West Coast, but also a concerted effort to fix the acquisition system for the government over the past couple of years, really coming out of Congress has been relatively successful in being able to use those authorities and getting, I think, program managers and people in the government who have the authority comfortable with these changes and being able to actually use them will hopefully speed all this up and let us get better, better yes. access. Yes. Let's fix that acquisition process. Let's do that. That would be good. <laughs> I think we should do that. Yeah. In my, when I first joined um, my committee on the Hill, I remember Somebody from DOD came down to brief us on the acquisition process, and they unrolled a piece of paper, I mean a scroll, that covered our entire conference table that was supposed to lay out the acquisition process. I mean, it was like a 10-foot-long spreadsheet. And I remember looking at it and thinking to myself, no wonder this is so challenging. I don't know how the heck I'm supposed to understand this to fix it, much less, you know, some company who's trying to make their way through it to sell their product. I think, you know, this is one of those places where the road to hell truly was paved with good intentions. The government wants the best product. They want to create a really fair and equitable process for awarding these contracts. Um, they want to be sure that, you know, American taxpayer dollars are being spent well. But at the same time, you know, regulation piles on regulation, which piles on process. And then you have a 10 foot long spreadsheet that nobody can navigate. And it, it makes it more challenging for, for companies who have really good products they want to provide to try to provide them to the government. But it's not all gloom and doom. You're right. Right. No, I think we're, we're working through it. I think there is some real supporters and, and people working really hard to fix this from within the government as well, knowing that we might be losing out on a lot of these smaller companies or niche technologies that would be incredibly helpful for us that just can't get through that 10-foot-long scroll of acquisitions process. But also that, you know, us within the bubble, the D.C. bubble, have to be more thoughtful about engaging. Speaking the same language was something that we talked about, not using so many acronyms, which I deeply feel. <laughs> and it's definitely something that we try to do on this podcast is to not use too many acronyms, or if we do accidentally, we try to go and define them before <laughs> the podcast even starts. But it's just so naturally ingrained into the way DC tends to communicate 
and either acronyms or PowerPoints. And I think we need to get over both. <laughs> no, no PowerPoints. <laughs> we need to get over both and be able to, to really have a common language and understanding of how both want to work and find that kind of compromise. Totally agree. And this is why I'm so much in favor of some of the, the hostage swaps that we talked about during the podcast, where if you can have some of the great talent from across the country come and spend, you know, a year or two in D.C. working to further national security and share their talents and then also just sort of understanding the weird way that D.C. works and doesn't. I mean, that kind of exchange could be not only beneficial for a fresh look at things like the acquisition process and trying to fix it, um, but then also just to educate other folks on how this works so they can get things done when they come to D.C. There's a lot of advantages, I think, to, to having that <laughs> cultural exchange of sorts <laughs> between the two coasts. I was going to say, this is like the full circle when we <laughs> you know, started talking about this divide in ethics and wanting to or not wanting to work with the government is, is if these people come to D.C. And, and vice versa, we go out to the West Coast. People are people and you're always going to find human connection and, and hopefully it will instill a little bit more trust in the government because then you're exposed to the people who are actually working really hard every day to run it. In a podcast talking about the, the niceties of tech, it's definitely a human to human connection. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining. Appreciated having you. Anytime. As we wrap up, I'd like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of our series. Visit our show page at csis.org slash techunmanned for show notes and more about our guests. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at techunmannedpod. And don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, and review this series wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks.